You cannot preach the Bible in a listless, lackadaisical kind of way. There needs to be an urgency in your heart. You need to be gripped that the message that you are sharing with individual concerns life and death and eternal issues. It concerns the sinner's plight that if he is not rescued through the blood of Christ, through faith in Jesus, that he will spend an eternity under the retribution of God Almighty. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. Pastor Carl has been addressing biblical prophecy that has yet to be fulfilled in his series, God's Prophetic Schedule. Over the next three days, Dr. Brogy will be preaching from 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1-5. through 5. Today's sermon is entitled, Sharing Christ in Difficult Days. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 and 2 say, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort, with great patience and instruction. What is the most significant thing that you can share with someone else? Today, we will see that the charges mandate in verses one and two tell us that we are to preach the word urgently, patiently, and doctrinally. Let's join Pastor Carl now as he begins. I want to invite you this morning to take your Bibles, please, and turn to 2 Timothy chapter 4. As you're turning there, I want to ask you a simple question. What is the single most important thing that's ever happened to you in your whole life? If you are a true believer without stammer or stutter, without any pause, you will say the day I became a believer because that changed your eternal destiny. Well, if that's true, what's the most significant thing that you could share with another person? Obviously, how they could come to know Christ. Then why is it that so many Christians would rather do just about anything than to share the gospel? I'll do anything. I'll pass out bulletins. I'll open doors. I'll lick envelopes. I'll serve in the nursery. I'll even clean the bathrooms. Please don't ask me to witness. I suppose there are several reasons why Christians have made such conclusions. First, we're afraid of the unpredictable. We're afraid that people will put us down. Well, some people will. Some people will put you down. That's what the message does sometimes. Some are afraid that they might be asked a question that they don't know the answer. That's okay. That will just make you sharper. And all you have to do is say, you know, I don't know the answer to that question, but I'll find out. Some people think, well, you know, I hear of all these people who have these glowing testimonies of folks they've introduced to Christ, and I mustn't have the gift. You may not have that gift to evangelize. That's one of 20 gifts in the New Testament called the gift of evangelism. But we all share that responsibility just as we share the gift of Uh, the responsibility of the gift of mercy, or we share the responsibility of the gift of serving, or we share the responsibility of the gift of teaching. Some are gifted in those four areas, but we all share the responsibility. But I suppose the worst reason that someone would not share their faith is, I just don't care. They have a cold, unresponsive heart. And they get excited about all kinds of things, but not sharing the gospel. And yet, if you've been saved, God has entrusted to you a commission. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 19 that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not committing their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the ministry of reconciliation. 
When Paul uses that plural pronoun us, he's including himself and all the Christians in Corinth and by application, all of us. God is committed to us, the word of reconciliation. He continues as though God were treating through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. We stand in the place of the Lord God beseeching on his behalf, how people can be made right, how they can be reconciled to God. That's a tremendous responsibility, and indeed, it's an infinite privilege. And one of these days, God is going to say, enough. My church has done all they're going to do, and we will be caught up into the air, and he will then use 144,000 Jewish missionaries and evangelists who will be converted after the rapture, and they will preach the gospel to the whole world. That's what Jesus was referring to when we studied recently in the Olivet Discourse that we'll be coming back to, Matthew 24. This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. It will be fulfilled, the Great Commission. And of course, contextually, he tells us that this will happen during the time of the Great Tribulation period. And so John can see the fruit of those evangelists, all 144,000. And he said, after these things, I looked and behold a great multitude, which no one could count, from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches were in their hands. And they cry out with a loud voice saying, salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So the great commission will indeed be fulfilled. It doesn't change the fact that we are to be agents of God to help fulfill it. I love what Paul said and commanded in the prayer request he asked of the church in Colossae. He said, devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving, praying at, all, praying at the same time for us as well that God will open to us a door for the word so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ for which I have also been imprisoned, that I may make it clear in the way I ought to speak. Paul prayed for open doors of opportunity to share the Lord Jesus and that when that door came open that he might make the gospel clearer. And if you want to pray for me for something, people say, well, what can I pray for you for, Pastor? You can pray for me that God will give me more open doors and that when the opportunity comes, I might make it clear. And by the way, if that was Paul's need, the great theologian who gave us so many New Testament books, he needed to make it clear. What must your need, what must my need be? But you know what I have found? That when I pray for opportunities, God just has a way of bringing people into my path who are prepared. Sometimes you are planting a seed for the first time. Other people are so ripe, they're ready to be harvested and brought into the kingdom. Listen, God works at both ends of the spectrum. He works in the heart of the unbeliever, and he works in the heart of the believer that loves the Lord Jesus. And next Sunday, of course, we have a great opportunity. It's Friend Day, and with all my heart, and those in Graniteville, those in Grays, those here, those who are live streaming in Beaufort County, invite people to Friend Day. Invite someone. I invited a half a dozen or more people this past week, and I hope to invite three times that in the week that is in front of us. And so there's invitational cards as you leave. Now, if you're here for the first time, my modus operandi is typically to take a book of the Bible and go through it verse by verse, chapter by chapter. But we're in a series. I'm still preaching expositionally, but the series I've entitled God's Prophetic Schedule. 
And we have learned that at the end of the age, things will not get better, things will get worse. Our text refers to difficult times, perilous times, some English Bibles say. And so we want to be effective in these perilous times. By the way, chapter 4 pictures the very last words Paul will ever pen. He's at the end of his life. Tradition says that he's beheaded on the Ostian Way there in Rome. And he's writing to Timothy, his son, his true child in the faith, And he writes in a way in which he has zero regrets, but he wants to pass the baton on to this young pastor whom he had discipled. Paul knows that all that is before him is the crown of righteousness, which the Lord will give not just to Paul, but to every believer who loves and longs for his appearing. Because as you love and long for the appearing of Christ, it changes your life today, and it will certainly make you passionate, whatever the circumstances are, to share the gospel. Chapter 4, verse 1, follow along. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing in his kingdom. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure a sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate to themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. But you, be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Now, if you know chapter three, it opens up with the truth that we are, that he's describing the characteristics of the last days. And he refers to the last days as difficult or perilous times. It's a picture of a very harsh, savage, difficult time in which to live. In fact, that word translated difficult in chapter 3 is used only in one other place in the New Testament of the Gadarene demoniacs, who were wicked men controlled by multiple demons. But indeed, it will be difficult to walk at the end of time. And he gave us a list of reasons in 2 Timothy 3, because indeed it will be more difficult to keep marriages together, because there will be much playing against marriages, more pressure. Indeed, it will be more difficult because children will be rebellious against their parents. That's one of the marks of the last days. It will be different, difficult because men will be without natural love. That He's describing homosexual, transgender, perverted behavior without natural love. And he reminds us in chapter 3 that much of the difficulty that he records is all done in the name of religion. And so he says, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power, avoid such men as these. Now, certainly the instruction and the warning of the last days applies not just to the end of time, but to Timothy's day. Because he can command him, avoid such men as these. Meaning, such people just described were very much alive and active. Sometimes people ask me, do you believe we're in the last days? And my answer is, it all depends. It all depends on what you mean by the last days. See, it may seem natural to us to Think of the last days as some future time frame right before Jesus comes back. But the Bible will not allow you to restrict the term to that kind of definition. As you read the New Testament, it becomes very apparent that we are living in a new age. That the old age, the old covenant, the old deal has passed away. And a new covenant, 
a new age has dawned, and it's referred to as the last days. That's why Peter, on the day of Pentecost, stands up after a miracle where the Spirit is given, where externally it's seen, and that people speak real languages that they did not previously know. He said, but this, what they just witnessed, this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. And it shall be in the last days, God says that I will pour forth of my Spirit upon all mankind. So Peter believed that this was going to be fulfilled in the last days, and they just saw it. Likewise, the writer of the Hebrews opens his epistle saying, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions, in many ways, in these last days, has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. So clearly, the writer of the Hebrews believed that he was in the last days. But of course... As you read through the New Testament, one of the reasons, indeed, this phrase, the last days is used is because the return of Jesus is imminent. He could come at any moment. But we could definitely speak of what some call the last of the last days. Because in 2 Timothy 3, verse, uh, chapter 3 and verse 13, remember the chapter and verse divisions are artificial so don't let those distract you. He speaks of this time frame where people will be deceived and being deceived and where times will go from bad to worse. So Paul looks down the corridors of time and that's why he uses a future tense when things will get much worse. And so the things that Paul described in Timothy's day are accelerating with a fury. He predicted that there would be a breakdown in natural love, that there would be a culture, a world characterized by unthankfulness, by immorality, by disobedience to parents, by sin, by false professions, by heretical teachings. And it seems like with every decade, things that were startling and bizarre to us 12 months ago are now even more bizarre and startling. And so we have a world that feeds on a diet of filth. The media is covered over in sensuality. The internet that started as an interesting and educational tool shortly turned into so much garbage, so much filth. And the things that once bothered Americans, and not just Americans, across the world, people now entertain themselves with. The law was once, well, it was once respected in this nation. But lawlessness is growing. Violence, we used to be able to, you know, the only time we locked our doors as children, we didn't even lock them at night. The only time my parents locked our doors is when we went on vacation. Everything has changed. Marriage vows are no longer considered as sacred. Children... They're being abused. When I think of these politicians who are advocating that children should have the right to have mastectomies or to be castrated as young men, this is evil beyond evil. These people are guilty of child abuse. And it once would have been considered child abuse, but not any longer. And so how do we walk with God in times like this? How do we make a difference in such an apostate world? 
Well, he's going to help us to understand. And it's important that all of us listen because what we are corporately is the sum total of what we are individually. And so God wants these things to be true, not just of Timothy, but Timothy is to be a model to the congregation that he leads. He wants them to be true of us. Notice how he begins with this charge in verse 1. I solemnly charge you. You might want to circle the word charge. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead by his appearing in his kingdom. It's a solemn charge given to every pastor and secondarily, of course, to every believer. And I say it's a serious moment as Paul writes this last letter here at the end of his life, and he reminds Timothy that the charge he has given is not being given in his own name or even by his own apostolic authority, but he underscores in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus. That's serious. And I suppose perhaps one of the strongest incentives for living is that we want to please the Lord and not simply men. Because Jesus is coming back and he will judge the just in heaven and reward them accordingly and he will judge the lost. All will appear before the one who will judge the living and the dead. And I hope you see today that while you may not be called to be a pastor like Timothy, we're all called to be preachers, to preach the gospel. In fact, in a non-technical sense in Romans 10, 14, the Bible applies it to every believer. Every believer is called a preacher. Now, I know in the South especially, sometimes people say, hey, preacher. But understand, we could say that in the first century of any believer. Whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved, but how can they call upon him who they have not heard, and how will they hear without a preacher? He's talking about the obedient Christian who will share the gospel in that context. And so we need to carefully look at this charge that he has given. There are three aspects to the charge. First, the charge's mandate. Precisely what is this charge that Paul is commissioning Timothy with and us? Second, I want us to think this morning about the charge's motivation. That is, why is it this charge should be carried out? What is this charge based on? What's its motivation? And third, I want us to ponder a little bit about the charge's manner. How is it that this charge is to be carried out? So let's begin with the charge's mandate. The essence of the charge is summed up in the very first three words of verse 2. I charge you. In fact, let me read the command without the, um, without the intervening words. I solemnly charge you, dot, 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 preach the word. Now, please notice that the message that Timothy is to preach is called the Word. And that's a concept that's mentioned over and over again in Paul's epistles. He uses the word sound doctrine, even in this immediate context, in verse 3 to describe the Word. In verse 4, he describes the Word, notice, as the truth. You should circle that as well. In verse 7, he describes the word as the faith, not faith, but the faith, meaning that body of truth that the apostles gave us that we call the Bible. And so what does the faith consist of? It includes all of the Old Testament that is God-breathed, but it also includes um, not just what Timothy learned from childhood, but that all God would give through his apostles and those whom they designated to help write the New Testament. So contrary to the popular practice of our day that a preacher is supposed to be original, 
We are simply to preach the word. Paul wants him to understand that pastors and church members are not simply to hear the word. They're not simply to believe the word. They're not simply to obey the word. Nor are they simply to guard the word as he commands them. Nor are they simply to suffer for the word as he says. Nor are they simply to continue in the word as he taught and commanded Timothy to do in the earlier chapters. No, you're not simply to guard the word, suffer for the word, continue in the word. You're to preach the word. You're to speak the word. You're to share the truth verbally. Preach the word. Why? Because it's good news and good news is worth sharing. But what's so pitiful in our day is that in American evangelicalism, more and more, the Bible has taken a back seat. And we've become like liberal Protestants. Their motivation is different for not preaching the Bible. For the most part, they don't believe it. But in evangelicalism, they're not preaching the Bible because they don't want to act offensive on Sunday morning and they need to be, quote-unquote, seeker-sensitive. But the word preach here is an important New Testament word. It's the word keruso, and it means to preach like a herald. A herald represented a king. Without apology, he didn't go as an ambassador to negotiate a message. He went and he announced what needed to be heard and what needed to be heeded. And if the king's message needed to be heeded, the message of the king of kings and lord of lords all the more needs to be heeded. And so having given the charge, he now goes on to give us four marks for the charge. And again, you should take notes this morning. There were some people in the last service who were just sitting like this, never taking a note. And I think someday you're going to stand before Jesus, the judge of the living and the dead, and I don't want you to be deficient on that day. Go home, think about these things, turn them into prayer requests. Ask God to make them true in your life and in mine. First, we're to preach the word urgently. We're to preach the word urgently. Four marks that's to characterize Timothy's preaching and your preaching. We're to preach the word urgently. Again, in verse two, preach the word, be ready. Circle that word ready. Be ready in season and out of season. Now, the verb be ready, I suppose, cannot be captured by a single English word. It means to, be, to stand by so as to be ready. The verb was used in the first century in a military context of a Roman soldier who is ready at any moment to step into battle. It speaks of alertness. It speaks of urgency. The RSV renders it, preach the word, be urgent in season and out of season. Uh, The Phillips paraphrases it, preach the word, never lose your sense of urgency. You cannot preach the Bible in a listless, lackadaisical kind of way. There needs to be an urgency in your heart. You need to be gripped that the message that you are sharing with individual concerns life and death and eternal issues. It concerns the sinner's plight that if he is not rescued through the blood of Christ, through faith in Jesus, that he will spend an eternity under the retribution of God Almighty. And it concerns many present matters in terms of how we as Christ's ambassadors are to represent him. And sadly, what has happened so much in our day is that people have gone through the text, but the text has never gone through them. And they're not really gripped with it. And there's not a sense of fire and urgency in their preaching. I don't care if it's an Awana class or a sixth grade boys or an ABF 
or someone standing behind a pulpit. There should be a fire, an urgency in our bones. Jeremiah said, then I said, I will not make mention of him, nor speak any more in his name. But his word was in my heart like a burning fire, shut up in my bones. I was wary of holding it back, and I could not. In staff meeting a few years ago, we meet on Tuesday morning, all the pastors and directors, and we study together the Reformed pastor. It's a classic read. It was done by Richard Baxter in 1656. And he said this, whatever you do, let the people see that you are of good earnest. You cannot break men's hearts by jesting with them or telling them a smooth tale or patching up a gaudy oration. Men will not cast away their darest pleasures upon a drowsy request of one that seems not to mean as he speaks or to care much whether his request be granted. That's why it's essentially important for Paul to encourage Timothy to be a spirit-filled pastor because you cannot manufacture this passion. And I've seen a lot of manufactured passion by a pastor who simply shouts and he thinks if he shouts a little bit louder that that's gonna bring the point home. But unless the Spirit of God anoints the words, it falls on deaf ears. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Timothy is to be diligent. He is to be alert with a sense of urgency as God opens doors in season and out of season. When you feel like it, and when you don't feel like it, when it's convenient and when it's inconvenient. The week before last, I had a 70-hour week, and I woke up like most pastors do on Monday with a preacher's hangover, as we call him. Call my son-in-law. He says, oh, you know, Mondays are, like, really tough. He's in his 30s. I said, it's no different if you're in your 30s or 60s. When you emote under the Spirit of God for hours... And all week long, you're moving, and God's working in your heart and mind towards a message. You're just like wiped out the next day. And I met this individual. I certainly didn't feel like speaking with him. But I needed to be ready in season and out of season. And I'm so glad I did because he was so open to the truth of the gospel. Ecclesiastes, Solomon wrote in the 11th chapter, he who watches the wind will not sow, and he who looks at the clouds will not reap. The Living Bible paraphrases it this way. If you wait for perfect conditions, you will never get anything done. Verse 2 here in the NAS simply reads, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season. The CJB, the complete Jewish Bible, renders it, proclaim the word. Be on hand with it, whether the time seems right or not. The net translation of the Bible says, preach the message, be ready, whether it's convenient or not. Now, this by no means indicates that we're to be brash or insensitive or harsh, where we invade someone's privacy when we're not welcome. Sometimes in the name of evangelism, I've seen people kick doors down. But understand the favorable or unfavorable, this in-season or out-of-season, the convenient or inconvenient sign, a time that he is describing, is in relation not to the hearer but to the speaker. If you enjoyed today's message, you can order a CD or DVD copy by calling Search the Scriptures at 877-787-7478 and requesting program God's Prophetic Schedule 019. 
If you would like to ask Pastor Brogy a question personally, don't forget that you can do that on Tuesdays between 11 and noon Eastern during his live call-in program, The Bible Line. You can listen to The Bible Line online at wagp.net. We hope that you will join us tomorrow as we continue to search the scriptures.